It's very kind of you to, to clap this early and probably without caffeine, So, but thank you very much. I appreciate it. Um, I want to kind of just take you back a little bit through my journey, if you will, this morning. Um, to really start out, um, I started as an assistant district attorney uh, in Manhattan in 2003. Um, and at that time, uh, if I'm being perfectly honest, I knew absolutely nothing about human trafficking. Um, there wasn't even a law on the books about human trafficking in uh, 2003. Um, it, that didn't come later until 2007. And so when I started, um, I won't ask for a show of hands, but for those of you who have seen uh, arraignments in Manhattan Criminal Court, um, it's actually, uh, it can be a very scary place. Um, there's about uh, anywhere from 500 to 1,000 cases that get heard in two courtrooms in Lower Manhattan, uh, right there on Center Street. Um, and as a young district attorney, you basically get a giant pile, stack of, of papers, and the judge will call out a number, okay, next docket, uh, ending 273, and you quickly, you just go like this, and you say, if you find the file for docket 273, and you pick it up, and you have about 60 seconds from the time that the court officer brings out the defendant um, to look through, look at the rap sheet, look through everything, look through the case, and make certain determinations about what you're going to do with that case at that time. And one of the cases that came through very frequently were prostitution cases. And so at that time, um, I, as I said, candidly, I knew nothing about human trafficking, uh, particularly sex trafficking. And so I, like many of my, I was one of about 500 assistant district attorneys at the time, um, would look at it, I'd get my 60 seconds, I'd look, say, okay, this is a prostitution case, flip back, okay, last time it was a fine, then it was community service, I'm gonna recommend a couple days of jail, and we're gonna get this case moving as fast as humanly possible. The defense lawyers did the same thing. They said, okay, this is it, and we would get there. The judge spent about 45 seconds on the case, um, and the person, usually nine times out of 10, would plead guilty, case would be gone, and we continued to turn, turn that system. Many things we didn't think about at that time were who was waiting in that audience. Very frequently, the trafficker was waiting in the audience. Very frequently, the pimp was waiting in the audience. And what we all sort of knew but didn't acknowledge, what this, this was happening sort of right in front of our eyes. And it took me um, a long time to actually even realize it. It took me uh, for meeting with an organization called GEMS, uh, which is Girls Education Mentoring Service, and the founder's name is Rachel Lloyd, who um, I saw her speak once. And she started telling me this horrific story about a young girl who um, was one of, of her kids, who was sexually abused as a child, who was uh, kicked out at 13, who was found by her first pimp at 13 and a half and was being prostituted uh, by 13, 14 years old, and how she had been touched by so many systems and all of those systems had failed her, including my office. And during this time where she talked about it, she sort of said, oh, well, these DAs, they don't do anything. She told this horrible story about a particular DA. And I said, oh, this is, this is terrible. So I went up and talked to her afterwards. And I said to her, um, you know, I'm from the DA's office. Um, what office are you talking about? And she said, yours. And then she had a few other choice words for me. And once she stopped sort of saying nasty things, I said, okay, what can we do to actually change this? What can we do to help? 
And that was the beginning, my, my sort of area of ignorance, um, where I decided I needed to, to actually learn, to educate myself on, on what's happening and see what we can do uh, to do something about it. And I learned lots, not just about sex trafficking in Manhattan, but I learned about slavery that was woven into the fabric of my clothing, that slavery that was woven into the fish um, and the shrimp that I was eating that was being farmed um, and shelled by children. Um, learning about the materials and the, the um, building blocks of my cell phone and how that was being produced and how there was slavery etched into that as well. And as I learned all of these things, I uh, really started thinking, all right, I can, this is what I can do now. I'm ready to be a white knight. I want to get up on my horse. I want to go in. I want to kick doors in. I want to break chains. I want to free slaves. And that's really what I thought. And I thought, okay, this is where God's calling me. This is where, this is where I can make a difference. Um, that notion quickly was broken down for me. One of my first cases that I dealt with um, involved a 16-year-old girl who the police had quote-unquote rescued um, out of a brothel. And so I said, okay, here, God, you're leading me this way. I'm ready to make a difference. I'm going to go in, and I'm going to help free her. And I walked, what I walked into, though, was somebody who was extraordinarily angry, um, who did not want to see me in any shape or form, and let me know that, um, and then follow that up uh, by kicking a chair at me, spitting at me, um, and I didn't, I didn't get it. I just, I said, wait, I'm here. I'm on my horse. I'm the white knight. I'm coming in to help. Why aren't I being received as such? Why am I, um, what's, what's going on here? God, isn't this the way you called me? Isn't this what you called me to do? Here I am. And what I learned was, was a number of different things. Um, it kind of was a, was a epitomized in a case I did involving a father and son um, who were sexually trafficking um, a number of young girls. And all of these girls had the exact same background. They had early childhood sexual assaults. They had been abused. They had never been told they were loved. They'd been in a foster care system. They had all of these vulnerabilities. And really they lacked connection. They lacked connection to something um, higher than themselves. They lacked connection to, uh, to God. They lacked connection to others. And that vulnerability is what the trafficker played on. And so again, I thought I would do this great case and we built a case where we had wiretaps and we could hear the father and son threatening all of these victims and saying, Things like, well, if you don't make your quota, if you don't come back with the right amount of money, we're going to do X, Y, Z thing, horrible things to you. And I thought, okay, we really, you know, we have this. And all we have to do now is sort of hold up this mirror and show people how they're being, uh, being violated, show the victims themselves how they're being violated. And again, we'll break the chains and we'll get, uh, and we'll have a better outcome. Again, I was wrong. What I learned was despite everything we had and everything we, all the evidence we had developed, the victims actually all came out uh, and testified on behalf of the father and son. They all, we had recorded phone calls where they did a joint marriage proposal where he had four of his victims on the phone 
despite sending them out every night, despite saying you have to make $500 from prostitution and bring it all back to me, despite all of that, he, in a, in a recorded call that was played at, at trial, said, said, will you marry me? And they all said, yes, let's just find the place where we can have this polygamist marriage. And so again, I was wrong. I was wrong that I could ever be a, a, the white knight. I was wrong that I could ever shatter these chains because as I learned, it, I was making that about myself. I was making that about me. And there were several lessons I learned from this that really furthered my faith. One was to recognize that I'm not in control, that even though I see this problem, even though I see what it is that I want to, to do something about, I was not in control of that. I could not, I had to turn myself over to something bigger than myself who could help guide and direct me. And the second was I wasn't listening well enough. I wasn't listening to where I was being directed. I wasn't listening hard enough to uh, the people that I, was be, that I was interacting with. And then once I started doing both of those things, um, I really learned that the only thing that we could counter these vulnerabilities with was caring, was love, was faith. And if we didn't do that, then we weren't going to be ever be able to make a, a difference. And so instead of thinking of it as the, somebody riding in on a white horse and being a hero, I started thinking about it as who can we bring together? How can I listen to others who are working in this space? How can we bring people together? And then whatever role that I had to play in that would be okay. And I didn't have to be sort of the center of it. I didn't have to, the, the prosecution didn't have to be the center of it. So we started hiring different types of people. We hired a social worker and she became uh, the first person who would just go in, uh, that she would be in the room before anybody else was, before an investigator, before an assistant district attorney. She was that connection. And for almost every victim we had, she was the white knight. She was the person who came in who understood who was helping, who was building those bridges that none of us could build uh, otherwise. Um, we, I listened to hear who we met, because we bring together people in a different way. You'd have all these chance encounters, um, but they really weren't chance. They were done for a reason. And those encounters led us to do lots of different things, working with the financial system, uh, working with technology companies, working with the Department of Defense and their research arm, uh, working with uh, foundations, uh, working with the hotel industry. All of these quote-unquote chance meetings were really leading me to a very different purpose and were really, bless you, really leading to us to a very different purpose. Um, but it wasn't a purpose of my design and it wasn't a purpose of my control. And once I realized that I wasn't in control and I needed to listen, um, things really started happening uh, for the people that we were trying to serve. And so fast forward a little bit, I wound up um, working in human trafficking for about 10 years. Um, and recently within the last year, have the privilege and honor to now lead an organization called Guideposts, um, which as uh, Jason pointed out, it's, it's vision um, is to help people love more and hate less. And when I was thinking about making the transition, I thought, 
Okay, you know, sex, what really got me interested, I guess, in sex trafficking was it was such a horrible thing and one of those things that you feel like you can't really do anything from the outside. It's one of those things that you feel like, okay, it's such an intractable problem, what can I do about it? And what I liked about my role was I could help to do something about it. I knew what to do. I knew who to get involved when we found a kid in a brothel in the middle of the night. I knew if, if somebody called me, I could do something about it and I could help make a more positive outcome. And I sort of felt that way about the world. Um, as I look around, whether it's uh, chemical weapons in Syria, uh, or the threat of nuclear war, or just talking heads screaming at each other back and forth, um, really not caring about being understood, but more interested uh, in, in, rather flip that, more interested in being understood than understanding. And I see that dynamic, that negativity in the world, and it's an intractable problem. It's a problem they think, well, what can you do about it as an individual? And what really excited me about guideposts was I felt that connection that I could do something about it. Its job, its sole purpose is to put good, positive hope, faith, and prayer back into the world. And I really saw that as really sort of two sides of the same coin. I had taken, helped to take evil out of the world, and now my job was to, is to put good back in. But I think as any good um, CEO would feel, um, you want to control everything. You want to be able to uh, even force things if you have to in order to get where you think you need to go. Um, so as I've approached this last year within this position, I've thought, okay, how do, I, how do I do this? What lessons, though, can I learn from my prior experience? And again, going back to it, there are things that are not in my control. All things are not in my control. And how can I listen to that voice? How can I listen to God's voice who's going to help bring me to different places? I think I know where I'm going, but God actually really knows where I'm going and can help me get there. And so my approach has been to try to do that at every turn, to try to listen more, to try to understand more before I try to, to be understood, um, and to just try to follow that, that quiet voice that you can only hear when you're listening, um, and you have to be quiet to be able to do it. Um, whether I'm successful in that or not remains to be seen, um, but I think I, I am hopeful, um, and I have faith that I will be, because I know. I've witnessed it, I've experienced it, and I know where it can lead and the good things that can happen because of it. So I just want to thank you all for having me here and allowing me to talk to you for a little bit and just want to leave time if anybody had any questions. Sir. Uh, as a, a public prosecutor, you had to immerse yourself and really learn <coughs> and guidepost. Do you find yourself needing to immerse yourself in negative news to combat that or, or do you clean that all out? Um, it's, <laughs> it's very easy actually to, uh, I, I'm already, I think we're all already immersed in, in sort of negative news. Um, I think my phone has buzzed three times uh, as I've been standing here talking. Um, and I think that's one of the areas where, where we all sort of feel that tug. You know, it's between social media and news alerts and, and all of these things that are constantly reminding us of the negative. There are so few things that are reminding us of the positive. Um, and I don't, we don't have to, to go out to do anything to, to hear it. It just washes over us 
and we don't even know it. We recently actually got a, um, a, a customer comment um, about um, Guidepost. She'd been a longtime Guidepost subscriber, and she had a stack of them, and she realized she hadn't read it basically in a year. And so she picked up one from March, and um, the way she described it, she goes, I felt welcome all of a sudden. I felt hopeful, I felt connected. Um, and what she said was she didn't realize how much negativity had just kind of seeped into her day-to-day -day life. Um, and without something to counterbalance that, without you know, coming to church, going to, you know, there's so many different ways that we can, we can counteract the negativity in the world and be reminded that we are connected to one another and connected to something uh, higher uh, and, and more important than ourselves, uh, that you know, the world wants us to be negative. Um, it really takes courage and faith to be positive. Um, and it's something I'm learning, and it's something that uh, I hope we as an organization um, can help bring others to, um, not in a judgmental or proselytizing way, but in a way that just shows the power of faith uh, through story. Um, and I think that's uh, really what uh, some of the best ministers and best preachers do. Yeah.